one that probably everyone here knows, being that um, she is not only world-renowned as a Jewish thinker, but also is locally here um, in our community as a leader and, and scholar. Chava Tarosh Samuelson is Regents Professor of History, Irving and Miriam Lowe Professor of Modern Judaism and Director of Jewish Studies at, at Arizona State University. She holds a PhD from the Hebrew University in Jewish Philosophy and Mysticism um, and a BA from SUNY Stony Brook in Religious Studies. Professor Samuelson is the author of the award-winning Between Worlds, The Life and Work of Rabbi David ben Judah Messer Leon, Happiness in Pre-Modern Judaism, Virtue, Knowledge, and Well-Being, and Religion and Environment, The Case of Judaism. And this topic today is, uh, I mean, there's much more to say about, about the professor. That's just a little snapshot, but most of you know her. And um, today, uh, today's topic is one that ought to be of enormous concern, uh, of interest and concern to all of us, given, uh, given the pressing matter. Um, and as always, we like to root our Jewish values um, in text and history. And so this is an opportunity to better understand various philosophies, theologies, historical approaches to understanding um, environmentalism. So Professor, thank you very much for joining us and I'm gonna hand it over to you and we're gonna make you the main screen here. All right. Hello everybody. Uh, you already know who I am. Uh, let me just set up the uh, presentation. All right. So um, I'm very glad to be speaking here at Valley Bet Midrash uh, and the Center for Jewish Studies at ASU has done a lot of work together with uh, Valley Bet Midrash. Uh, we are both engaged in the same task, basically, of bringing to the attention of the Jewish community in Phoenix, Arizona, the richness uh, of Jewish civilization uh, in all its uh, complexity. Uh, and we are actually operating in a very similar uh, space and vein. I want to bring to your attention uh, two conferences that are coming up, one on anti-Semitism in comparative perspective, that would be uh, on January 25th, 2021. And another one which is relevant to my talk today on Judaism and climate change, science, theology, and ethics, which will be February 28th, 2021. And I will end my lecture with a slide about that. So um, my talk today is about Jewish responses to the ecological crisis with some focus on climate change. I will begin by saying a few words about the ecological crisis. I will then indicate uh, how Jews have responded to this in the context of the discipline we call religion and ecology. I will then identify theological principles that guide Jewish religious environmentalism uh, and highlight a few Jewish ethical principles or the principles of Jewish environmental ethics. And I will conclude with a few words about uh, climate change with a focus on climate uh, engineering. So here are the three questions that I have uh, for you. Uh, what are the manifestations and implications of the ecological crisis? That's number one that I will try to answer. Uh, second one, do Jewish theology and ethics address the ecological crisis? And if so, how? And then the third one, uh, what have Jews done so far to respond to the ecological crisis, especially concerning climate change? My take home message for you is also summarized. 
basically, I'm saying Judaism is compatible with environmentalism. I'm also telling you that there is a very elaborate ethics of care and responsibility in Judaism. Uh, a third point that you will hear from me is that we do have a thriving environmental movement today. Uh, and my recommendation is that we spend more time within the Jewish community. We should put, I think, the environmental agenda or the environmental issues at the top of the agenda as opposed to at the bottom of the agenda. And climate advocacy and climate education is just one aspect of Jewish environmentalism. So let me start by uh, clarifying what do I mean by ecological crisis? Um, there are a lot of things, a lot of phenomena that manifest a, what we call the ecological crisis. Some people call it climate crisis. Some people call it the sustainability crisis, but it's a range of phenomena. And I'm sure you know all of them, but it's good to bring it to mind. So global, Warming is part of it, shifting uh, weather patterns, uh, extreme weather events, retreats of glaciers, rising sea levels, uh, mega droughts and desertification, uh, threat, of available, threat to available water, food and shelter, mass extinctions of species, loss of fisheries and forest, acidification, pollution of air, water and soil, and shifts in uh, prevalence and range of diseases. So we have a whole range of phenomena that we call, uh, that, that go under this rubric of uh, ecological crisis. And because that, those range of phenomena, those range of um, problems are all humanly caused, we talk about anthropogenic crisis. It's a crisis brought about by human activities. But the crisis is problematic because we apparently have reached a certain point, the point that we now call the beginning of the Anthropocene, namely the age of humans. And in the age of humans, in the Anthropocene, which is what you have at the bottom of the, at the bottom of your screen, you will know that something new is happening. And what's new now is that we cannot separate between nature and humanity anymore. Rather, what we have are um, kind of a merging or fusion of nature and humanity because humans and nature interact reciprocally and they form complex feedback loops. The problem is that we have entered a situation in which those changes are permanent and probably irreversible. And that forces us to really deal with some major challenge. So the Anthropocene, the term was coined only in 2000. It was coined by a scientist by the name of Paul Kruzen. And he taught us something that we all need to think about. He says the following, a daunting task lies ahead for scientists and engineers to guide society toward environmentally sustainable management during the era of the Anthropocene. This will require appropriate human behavior at all scales and may well involve the intentionally accepted large scale geoengineering projects, for instance, to optimize climate. 
I said that 20 years ago, and a lot has happened since then. But what he's suggesting is that what we call geoengineering or climate engineering is the way to go in order to solve the problems. That proposition has been debated. There are techno-optimists who are very hopeful about the possibility of technology to basically remake Eden on Earth. But there are also other people on the other side of the debate, let's call them the techno-pessimists, who are very critical of this approach and actually counsel caution. And in between, you have the techno-scientific pragmatist who recognize that technology is not unproblematic, but um, because humanity didn't do what it was supposed to do already, there probably is no better choice than to go that route. So I'm not gonna get into the various technologies. I'm not capable or qualified to talk about the various technologies of, of geoengineering, but I do want you to keep this phrase in mind that the Anthropocene is understood by many people as, I'm sorry for, <laughs> for this. The Anthropocene has been used by many people as a shorthand to an engineered age. So we are in a situation in which engineering uh, the environment is seen to a lot of people as the solution. Personally, I don't take this position, but you need to know that it exists. Those who oppose geoengineering hold that climate change is not a techno-scientific matter to be decided by scientists and engineers. Rather, it's a social, cultural, an ethical issue that requires humanity to marshal its deepest moral, religious, and spiritual resources as it ponders the appropriate response. So there's no way to talk about climate change without getting into issues of morality, religion, and theology. So um, why bother with religion? I claim, along with other humanists, that religion and Judaism in particular helps us to frame the right response to the Anthropocene. Indeed, religion is crucial or crucially relevant to climate advocacy, to environmental education, and to thinking about human flourishing in the Anthropocene. But that point, what I just said, is not taken for granted by a lot of people within the academy for whom religion is a problem rather than the solution. So why do I say that religion matters? Number one, as you see on the slide, most of humanity still thinks about reality in religious categories. Um, human beings understand themselves, their society, their daily life through sacred and symbolic rituals that point beyond themselves to an ultimate reality. Within religious worldviews, human beings organize their life and find meaning, purpose, and hope as they face an unknown future. Religion provides the moral lens through which humans evaluate every aspect of life and decide what is good and what is wrong, what is permitted and what is forbidden. And finally, religion expresses human existential and emotional needs and frames that which we care about most, that it, whatever is our ultimate concern. So there's simply no way, in my argument, there's no way to be a human being without bringing those considerations to bear on how do we decide 
what is the right thing to do. Now we have a problem because not every Jew today is a religious person. As we all know, in the modern period, a lot of Jews actually see themselves as secular. They have little knowledge or interest in religious, in the, in religious sources of the Jewish tradition. So what shall we know? Well, the first thing to keep in mind is that some of the leading pioneers in the American environmental movement have been secular Jews. And a lot of people simply are not aware of them. Or if they are aware of the people, they are not aware that they are Jewish. And if they are aware that they are Jewish, they may not be aware of other things. Maybe that's a little bit more difficult. So here are three examples. Uh, everybody knows the name of Rachel Carson. She's the author of Silent Spring, was published in 1962. She's actually, uh, she was a scientist, a marine biologist. She was also a Presbyterian, or she defines herself as a last lapsed uh, Presbyterian. But very few people know that the first person on this slide, Maury Bookchin, published a book which says very similar things to what she said, and he did it before Rachel Carson. So in 1958 already, Maury Bookchin uh, published an essay on the problems of chemicals in food. And then in 1962, half a year before Carson's books appear, a book appeared, he published the book, Our Synthetic Environment. He did it under an assumed name. Not totally clear to me why did he choose to write an assumed name, but my, most likely it's because he was an anarchist, actually associated with a Trotskyist uh, party in the United States. And that probably is the reason behind the assumed name. So he created social ecology as a major strand of environmental ethics. Uh, he created this Institute of Social Ecology. It was associated with Goddard College. But the bottom line is that his point was that human responsibility toward nature requires us to look at patterns of exploitation. And the way we treat each other if we exploit other human beings, we're also going to exploit nature. So the goal of social ecology is to end all patterns of domination and exploitation. And it's a major, major theme in environmental ethics. Another person who is probably more known, Barry Kaminer, uh, another Jewish person, a cellular bi biologist uh, who is among the founders of the modern environmental movement. Uh, he was also a presidential candidate in 1980. Uh, and what he is known for are the laws of ecology, the four famous laws of ecology. Number one, everything is connected to everything else. Number two, everything must go somewhere. Number three, nature knows best. And number four, there is no such thing as a free lunch. We are all familiar with those laws. Uh, the interesting thing to keep in mind that Barry Kaminer showed also the connection between environment, energy, and economy, the three E's. And the point here is that we cannot deal with environmental problems unless we look into them in a um, kind of a, in, in a rounded, well-integrated uh, way. A third example here on the slide is Paul Earlier. He dealt with the issue of population explosion or the possibility of overpopulation, even though many of his predictions did not come to, did not become a reality. Nonetheless, it's very clear that 
focusing of, on overpopulation is clearly part of the environmental concern. I won't get into all the debates about his thesis, but just keep in mind, why do I bring these three to your attention? These three suggest to us there is a problem when we talk about Jewish environmentalists. These are all born Jews. They're all secular. Uh, they did not inaugurate a Jewish environmental movement. Uh, but I think that these people should be part of the conversation, part of our conversation, or part of the story that we are trying to unpack. So for me, when does the Jewish environmental movement begin? It begins when Jews who are environmentalists get to be committed to look at environmentalism from a Judaic perspective, namely from the point of view of the Jewish textual tradition. And that is going to happen only after two more things that I need to tell you about. So the Jewish environmental movement actually really began in the mid 80s. But why? We have to ask ourselves, why did it start in the, in the mid 1980s? And the answer is in something that already happened in 1967. And I refer now to a very famous author, a scholar, a medieval historian of technology. His name was Lynn White Jr. 1967, he published this very short, only five page essay, but a, a short essay that really changed everything. He actually delivered this essay first in, the, uh, in, a, in a meeting of the AAAS in December 26, 1966. But basically his argument was this, the Bible is the cause of our environmental crisis. And the worst religion from environmental perspective in his view is Christianity. But since we cannot talk about Christianity without Judaism, of course he speaks about the Judeo-Christian tradition. And for him, the Judeo-Christian tradition is the culprit here because it gave human beings the license to exploit the resources of the earth. Well, you can imagine that a lot of people were very unhappy with that claim and Jewish uh, theologians, rabbis, educators, uh, really started, the first argument was kind of an apologetic. So in the early seventies, as you see on your screen, on, in the early 70s, the attitude was, no, that's not the case. He doesn't know how to read the biblical text correctly, or he reads it out of context. He needs to read the Bible together with the rabbinic tradition. But the truth is that after the apologetic initial phase, what happens was the Jews began to look at their own traditions and examine it from an e ecological and environmental perspective. Starting with the Bible, of course, but going through the entire tradition. So what that produced was what we call ecological hermeneutics or ecological exegesis, namely interpreting the Bible in light of ecological insights. And it produced also systematic eco-theology. In the middle of the 1980s, the first Jewish uh, environmental movement, uh, environmental organization was created. It's called Shomre Adama, the Keepers of the Earth or the Guardians of the Earth. It's, it was done in Philadelphia. Philadelphia actually was very important to the history of environmental movement. 
And uh, definitely from then on, uh, we have a Jewish environmental or, uh, movement that is beginning to flower. 1993 is an important date. It's an important date because that's when the Coalition for Environment and Jewish Life or COGEL as an acronym was created. And there are some interesting things behind the creation of COGEL. If you ask why 1993, what happened then? The answer has to do with the fact that in 1990, famous scientists such as Carl Sagan came to the realization that science is not gonna get is not gonna get anything done unless it really brings on board, so to speak, the religious community. So it was the scientists who said first that what we're doing today is really crimes against creation. That came from the statement of Carl, Carl Sagan. 1991 there was another meeting in which uh, Carol, uh, Carl Sagan uh, uh, appealed to people and the response to his appeal was a joint appeal in re of religion and science. And basically here the argument was, and I'm quoting now from that text, that we have prophetic responsibility, listen to the language, prophetic responsibility to make known the full dimensions of this change and what is required to address it to, um, to the million of people that we reach, teach, and counsel. So in the, in the early 1990s, people recognized that science and religion have to work together. And that was the background to the creation of COGIL. So now I'm gonna focus on the Jewish context. And in the Jewish context, we always have to start with foundational uh, theology. Uh, every person who is in, familiar with the Jewish tradition knows that the three foundational beliefs are creation, revelation, and redemption. So my point here is that Jewish environmentalism offers a religious response to the ecological crisis. Um, how do we interpret creation? The doctrine of creation is very, very complicated, but the main point here to keep in mind is that creation offers us the moral and spiritual map that enables us to see the significance of things and then how to respond to those things. So creation basically says to us that we are not the owners of this world. The world does not belong to humans, it belongs to God. And if you think about that, you can understand why one of the early environmentalists, uh, Rabbi uh, Evergender said that what's happening today is the unmaking of creation. If we think about unmaking of creation, we are actually beginning to see ourselves as people who commit horrendous sins for which of course we need to repent and we need to turn things around. And that's basically what Jewish environmentalism is all, is all about, is kind of turning things around in a, in a positive way in order to protect what doesn't belong to us because it belongs to God. Part of the doctrine of creation, of course, is the creation of the human in the divine image. I'm not gonna to get to all the complexity, the, the theological complexities here, but my point is this, that human beings are responsible. They are responsible to God and responsible for the world. So it's a dual responsibility. There's just no way to talk about Judaism and the environment without talking about the ethics of care and responsibility. And the, the one verse, if you're gonna remember one verse, it's Genesis 2.15, when the human being is placed in the Garden of Eden with a task 
Hebrew it's leovda u leshomra, it's to till and protect the earth. Actually, the subject of the sentence is the earth, not the Garden of Eden. So it's to protect the earth. That's what our job is, according even to the biblical narrative of creation. How, do we, how are we going to go about it? Judaism, of course, has a covenantal theology. That's what Revelation is all about. Revelation is about the relationship between God and the people of Israel. And that relationship spells out exactly what people need to do and how they need to behave towards everything in life, including the physical environment. Um, and of course, the last one is redemption, the notion that everything that happens here, life in this world, how Lama Zeb prepares us to life in the world to come. Jewish philosophers, Jewish mystics debated what that means, but it's definitely clear that from a Judaic perspective, there is more to the world than what we see and what we perceive through the senses. So our Lama Ba, the future, the world to come, is this ultimate reality that will come about in this, in the eschaton, in the end of time. So now this is the foundation of anything that Jews are gonna talk about when they come to the environment. Those three foundational beliefs are always in the background and every document you're gonna see, not necessarily today, but if you read the document of Jewish organizations, you will find reference to creation, revelation of redemption in one way or another. Now here we have based the kind of a summary of the various principles, the ethical principles that are guiding the Jewish environmental movement. Uh, there are variations on the theme. I'm not gonna give you all the biblical references for them, but keep in mind that some in some form or another, and when you're dealing with Jewish responses to, the envi to environmental issues, you're gonna bump into any of those principles. I'll start with the first creation is a gift. That's what I mean by the doctrine of creation frames everything. And if you are a traditional Jew and you do say the blessings, you know that the blessings are the Jewish way of enabling us to express gratitude. They create a certain mindfulness toward the gift of creation. Uh, the blessings of a food, for example, have ecological significance. When we consider the source of food and reflect on the circumstances under which the food was grown, whether it is nurtured whether it is nurtures the earth or whether it harms the earth. We don't have to be vegetarians, but I have to say that vegetarianism is recommended, it seems to me, from the Judaic perspective. A second point is again a theme that appears in all the writings of Jewish environmental uh, texts. We are interconnected. Humans and the natural world are interconnected. The Shema, the major uh, the best known of all the Jewish prayers, it's a basic um, Jewish prayer, bears profound ecological meaning because it affirms the unity and the interconnectedness of all things. And in the second paragraph, we have the summary of what covenantal theology is all about. The bottom line is this, if we live rightly in terms of relationship with a natural environment, our surrounding will treat us well, but it also goes the other way around. If we treat the surrounding or the environment improperly, namely unjustly, then the earth is not gonna be as fecund as it could be. So what you have here in, the, in this principle is the notion that we are responsible, but by responsibility, we include a moral and ethical behavior that determines how we are gonna to relate to everything else, including the environment. 
Now in the Shema, of course, the reference is to the land of Israel, but you can generalize it. Not, it's not just about the land of Israel, but it's about the universe as a whole. A third principle is God, I already mentioned it earlier, that God is really the true proprietor of the earth. So the earth really belongs to God. Uh, Psalm 24, one says it beautifully, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It means that we are all temporary tenants on this earth. We cannot destroy what doesn't belong to us uh, because it's not ours to destroy. So if we have that basic awareness, I think uh, we can cultivate an ecological outlook that is very useful. Uh, the Jewish tradition, starting with the Bible, also has a lot of focus on the protection of biodiversity because God created the world, uh, each according to its kind. So the Jewish tradition, especially the Bible, speaks about uh, diversification and about separation. And there's a whole ethics of preservation of species and ecosystems that can be based on biblical um, verses. I'm not going to do this exegesis for you right now, but you should know that it exists. Limits on human consumption, of course, is the bottom line of the Jewish dietary system. Um, and if you think about the dietary laws from an ecological perspective, uh, you, we can get a, a long way toward an ecological mind or mindfulness if we do that. Let's keep in mind that, this in, that uh, the system of food production contributes between 25% and 37% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions. Eating is the one thing that we all do and that has the most far-reaching negative ecological consequences. So we need to consider whether produce that is grown at the, whatever we eat, we need to consider where it comes from, uh, what is the ecological damage that it could cause if we ship it over long distances. Uh, we need to think how we farm animals, uh, factory farmed animals. It's a, as you all know, it's a very problematic uh, scene. And um, we just need to be much more careful about uh, the way we consume the food we consume. I will say a few words in a few minutes about the bottom, the, the, the last line at, on the slide, the, no, the notion of eco-kosher, because eco-kosher or eco-kashrut is basically a kind of a catch-all phrase, how we can combine the dietary laws with the Jewish concern for justice. I'll come to it in a few minutes. Another theme is the concern for animal welfare, Otsar Baalei Chaim. Clearly the idea here is that if you treat animals uh, improperly, you are actually, or cruelly, you're actually creating cruelty in yourself. So in order to prevent that, we need to, pre we need to really work on our own virtues. And um, the virtuous person is the person who cannot treat animals uh, cruelly. Uh, but if you do treat animals cruelly, then it shows some uh, ethical lacuna in you. So kindness to animals is a virtue and it's something that we should definitely cultivate, I would say, from a young age. Concern for future generation is basically a Jewish way of thinking about sustainability. Uh, there is a lot of uh, conversation uh, starting, of course, with Deuteronomy 22, uh, verse 6 and 7, uh, about um, what happens when you find a nest on the ground or on a tree 
and it has the young ones in it or eggs in it. And the Deuteronomy tells us the mother sitting upon the young or upon the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take to yourselves that it may go well with you and that you may live long. So the notion that we need to, to ensure perpetuation of the species, I think already the biblical text suggests that that's the way to go. Perhaps the principle the Jewish environmental ethics is most known for is the prohibition on wanton destruction. It's known in Hebrew as baltashups. There's a mistake there, sorry, uh, typo. It should be baltashchit, do not destroy. Uh, it has been recently translated as waste not, which is also a nice translation. Uh, and the point here is that destruction, there's a whole range of prohibitions on wanton destruction that we need to kind of keep in mind. Uh, again, I think that this notion needs to be connected to the earlier idea that this world does not belong to us. But I have to tell you that in, in the rabbinic Judaism, especially in Talmud Shabbat 67a and 140a, basically specifies what it means. So there's a whole range of prohibitions on cutting off water supplies to trees or on, on overgrazing, on unjustifiably killing animals or feeding them harmful food. And the list goes on and on of a whole range of activities that you shouldn't do, including hunting, for example, hunting for sports, uh, as an example of the do not destroy. The tradition also speaks about pollution. There is a concern about uh, neighbors. So laws of neighbors deal with the problem of pollution. I'm gonna skip that and go to the, the big insight here is the notion that there is a connection between social justice and eco-justice. The causal connection between moral quality of human life and the vitality of human creation, that I think is one of the deepest insights of the Jewish tradition. So you have to treat the poor and the marginal, the hungry, the widow, the orphan, you have to treat them properly and you have to give them what they need in order to really benefit from the, from the beneficence of God. And if you fail to treat other members of society justly, uh, and if you fail to protect the sanctity of their life, uh, that's gonna harm the quality of the land that you live on. So in a sense, what we have today with the so much injustice and so much corruption and so much moral uh, misdeed, uh, perhaps tell us that something fundamentally is wrong in the relationship between humanity and God. Uh, finally, we have the Sabbath and the sabbatical year. Oops, another thing is missing there. Uh, this is just to show you that I'm not very adept in PowerPoint presentations here, but uh, yet, but I will get to it. So the Sabbath and the sabbatical year are examples of, uh, again, the, the, the connection between uh, morality and uh, the well-being of the land. The Sabbath is, can be viewed as an ecological, uh, it, it has an ecological significance. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, whom we just lost a few weeks ago, unfortunately, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs put it as, as follows. The most compelling tutorial in human dignity, environmental consciousness, and the principle that there are moral limits to economic exchange and commercial explosion, exploitation, sorry, is the Sabbath. And that's precisely true. Uh, so the Sabbath enables us to re uh, 
resist from working and from producing and from shopping and from driving and from flying and from doing all sorts of technological manipulation, take time to reflect and take time to really respect the land and respect the land broadly understood, I mean. So the Sabbath clearly has an ecological value. And that was applied also to the sabbatical year, uh, which is a very interesting institution uh, that was, of course, part of ancient Judaism, but has been revived today, uh, not just today, not just in the last decade, uh, but since Zionism brought the Jews back to the land of Israel, the sabbatical year has been revived. And today it is inspiring many environmentalists uh, to kind of think, how do, we be, how do we manage our life in a more sustainable way? And what can we learn from the uh, from the sabbatical year that could inspire us today. And I will end this section by mentioning the last, uh, a, a one more value, I didn't put it on the uh, slide, but you're all familiar with it, the notion of tikkun olam, all those things that we are doing as environmentally concerned people are all meant to make the world a better place, a more just place, a, 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 a place in which we can all flourish, but not just human beings, but all living things. So that's kind of in a nutshell, some of the basic uh, outlook of Jewish environmentalism. And then you can say, well, those are very nice ethical ideas, but you know, how does it help me as far as climate is concerned? So let me go to the last part of my comments by talking about uh, Jews, Judaism and climate change. So climate advocacy is just one aspect of Jewish environmental activism and education today. Uh, in Jewish public discourse, the reality of climate change is taken as a scientific fact that requires no validation. So you don't have to prove that there is climate change. That is taken for granted by perhaps everybody, at least in the official Jewish community. Climate change is viewed not merely as a scientific issue to which there are techno-scientific solutions, but first and foremost as a social and moral issue to which Judaism can and must respond. Indeed, all strands of modern Judaism, reform, conservative, reconstructionist, renewal, and orthodoxy have engaged climate change in some official statement, uh, but sometimes there could be uh, difference of opinion or controversy con concerning specific energy related practices, for example, fracking. So on fracking, I have to say, uh, you can see some differences among the various positions. The reform movement through its religion action center has been very active in calling for measures to combat uh, climate change. In 2009, it uh, passed a comprehensive resolution on climate change and energy that supported measures such as cap and trade uh, to reduce greenhouse gases. Um, the Reconstructionist movement has been very involved, especially in grassroots organizations. Um, the conservative movement has been crucial in all this conversation. They were behind the creation of COGEL to a great extent. And even the Orthodox community has been on board, especially in terms of creating um, the right kind of materials for Jewish schools in terms of conservation and renewable energy. 
So the entire Jewish community, at least the organized Jewish community, we can say is involved in some way. I'm not gonna give you all this formal statements, but there is a lot of material available uh, in that regard online. As far as uh, fracking um, or hydraulic fracking, there is a debate going on. And um, yes, we cannot all agree on it. Some Jews have actually created organizations or initiatives of Jews against hydrofracking, uh, but some other organizations actually back fracking and think that that's the solution uh, to some of our, at least in the meantime, some of our problems. Uh, so I'm gonna leave it as is. Uh, here is an example of some Jewish, or, uh, of some of four, just four organizations. I'm giving it to you just to, sh to show you that there is uh, progression uh, kind of uh, over time. Um, but keep in mind that um, um, there are many, many more Jewish organizations. So Kojel is the largest one uh, and the first one. It was actually a network of Jewish organization. Uh, it's less active now than it used to be in the 90s. Chazon today, Chazon, a Jewish Life of Sustainability, is the major Jewish organization today. Many of the activities, many of the institutions that were separate are all under the rubric of Chazon. It seems is an example of, of a, a, an organization that developed out, out of Green Zionist Alliance, but it's actually serving today. It's mainly a, a, a kind of a resource, uh, and a, a resource uh, center for a lot of environmental activity. And I put in uh, Wilderness Door as an example of an organization that pushes our Earth-based Judaism kind of as a way to move forward. But this is just an example of the kind of uh, variety of organization um, that is the background. And I'll get in a minute to two organizations that are about climate change uh, per se. So in terms of um, a person who is most relevant to the story of uh, climate change, we cannot, um, we cannot forget Arthur Waskow. Arthur Waskow is uh, perhaps, an, to me, he's an example of a, what social ecology in a Jewish garb looks like. So he grew out of the left. He was a very activist, anti-nuclear activist in the 60s and the 70s then became an ordained rabbi with uh, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi, became part of Jewish renewal, and really created kind of the uh, force. He was kind of a force toward um, climate advocacy. And when you read his, his work, the, the work of um, Arthur Waskow, you're going to find a lot of um, uh, negativity toward some of the practices we take for granted, I mean, capitalism. So he really rails against um, what people are doing as a matter of course. And uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to find exactly my, uh, some reason I kind of lost it here, but he's speaking very uh, forcefully against um, what he calls the carbon pharaohs of today. And uh, you can see how a leftist or left-orienting person can use the Jewish tradition in order to argue against some of the common practices, including uh, the energy practices that we take for granted. 
let me bring to your attention this uh, document from uh, 2015, the joint rabbinic statement, many reform conservative reconstructionists and orthodox rabbis up to 425 rabbis signed that document. The final signature was in October 29, 2015, but it was initiated already in May. Uh, and it was inspired by Laudato Si of Pope Francis. And um, here you can hear again how the doctrine of creation is the foundation of the response to the ecological crisis. So I'm going to read you a statement from the document saying this, although we accept scientific accounts of earth history, namely evolution, we continue to see it as God's creation. And we celebrate the presence of the divine hand in every earthly creature. So basically this document calls for tikkun olam and tikkun tevel, uh, the healing of the planet. And you have a, a religiously based attitude or response toward the challenge of climate change. They also include a whole list of policy. I'm not gonna go over them since my time is gonna run out uh, shortly. Uh, but I just want to let you know that, uh, yes, if you look at those policies, not everybody will like the policies because some of them are clearly on the left side, on the progressive side of the political uh, spectrum. Um, in terms of uh, Jewish grassroots organizations focusing on climate change, at least two come to mind, Jewish Climate Action Network, which is Boston-based, and Dayenu, a Jewish call for climate action, which is more recent one. And basically all of those organizations, whether it's climate change or otherwise, they are interested in mobilizing the Jewish community uh, in order to create leadership that can really take action. So it's always going, you have to educate, you have to be active and you have to organize. Those are the three main uh, categories. Uh, in terms of education, they hold educational conferences, workshop, uh, they teach synagogues how to become green, how to change your lifestyle, how to change your home. So that's education. In terms of activism, I'm sorry about that. Um, they, um, they engage in local, national, and global campaigns. And in terms of organized, they try to bring a lot of people uh, together. So basically organizations like that create awareness uh, they they, they uh, support political advocacy, they encourage personal communal change, and they bring our attention to social and economic injustices. So we don't know where it's going to go, but it's reasonable to assume that under the new uh, Biden-Harris administration, when climate change will become a more uh, high up on the agenda of the administration, we are going to see more Jews uh, becoming involved. Um, I have in two minutes, I'm, I'm going to just mention to you that all of this work has very little to do with climate engineering. Basically, Jews don't, hasn't, haven't, at least now, they have not entered any theological reflection on the permissibility of geoengineering or climate engineering. And I try uh, in, in an essay that I wrote to explain why that's the case. You have some of the reasons uh, listed for you. Um, I'm not saying that Jews cannot enter climate engineering conversation. Maybe they will, but at this point they have not done so. Perhaps when there will be particular legal issues appear and require attention, 
then we're gonna see more Jews enter the conversation about, um, about the permissibility or what's good and what's not so good about climate uh, engineering. But um, we cannot determine in advance what they're gonna say. Uh, clearly, it's all gonna be decided or discussed within the parameters, the theological and the legal parameters of the Jewish tradition itself. So in conclusion, let me say that the ecological crisis is definitely threatening the conditions of life in many regions and ecosystems. And the threat pertains not only to humans, but also to all other forms of life. And since we're all interconnected, what happens to other forms of life impacts us and vice versa. Due to human technological, economic, and social activities in the past two centuries, certain parts of the earth could become uninhabitable, exacerbating already stressed systems due to overpopulation. So world religions, including Judaism, have responded to the ecological crisis, each in its own way. And Judaism offers a framework within which to articulate a holistic, non-reductionist worldview that sees the physical world as imbued with religious significance, rather than as mere inert matter. Judaism has articulated an ethics of care and responsibility that teaches Jews to till and protect the earth rather than exploit the earth for their exclusive benefit. So caring for the created world is a religious obligation and it is our duty to ensure that we will not undo creation. We can care for the earth by doing a lot of things. We can become informed. We can change our lifestyle. We can green our institution. We can demand policy change and appropriate legislation. We can join environmental organizations. And of course, we can celebrate the rhythms of Jewish life with ecological mindfulness. So there are many ways for Jews today to become environmentally involved. And Jewish environmentalism appeals to both religious Jews as well as secular Jews. Indeed, environmentalism, I believe, can bring into organized Jewish life many Jews who have been unaffiliated or uninvolved. Our ecological crisis can become an opportunity for Jews across the entire spectrum to join hands, hearts, and minds so as to mend the world that we, human beings, have been destroying knowingly or unknowingly. As Mishnah Avot teaches us, the task is ours to complete and we are not, is not ours to complete, but we are not free to desist from it. So I'm gonna skip that. This is what we can each do. And by way of ending this, let me bring again this uh, conference that we're gonna hold online, of course, um, on February 28th, 2021. And uh, I would like all of us to be part of it. Rabbi Yanklovich is going to be on a final uh, panel there. Uh, other people that are relevant to the story I just outlined for you will be there. For example, Rabbi uh, Jenny Rosen uh, and uh, uh, Rabbi uh, Ellen Bernstein. 
So here is an example how we at ASU work together with other institutions here in Phoenix and all over the United States. This is a national conference. Uh, will bring us some awareness of what can be done uh, and from a Jewish perspective to use this uh, kind of a diagram. It's not a diagram, but this visual marker I, I, I look at this uh, as very much like the planting cycle. So even though we're not planting in what, if you look at the inside uh, content, we are learning, we are changing our lifestyle, we are making social change, finally we can make an impact. So it's a, uh, that visual is kind of a very useful way of thinking positively about what Jews have done and can still do to combat or to respond to climate change. So thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And um, I, I guess I would just like to open the floor for uh, questions and if anybody has one. Sure. Um, Dr. Samson, thank you so much. This is very comprehensive and inspiring. I'm looking forward to the conference. Uh, can I go from a wide angle lens to a macro lens here on something? Um, can you say something about the Tubishvat Seder, how it came to be? Uh, and I don't know if it's just an American thing or if uh, it's a tradition that developed in Israel as well over the last couple of decades. So, okay, the question will require a lot of unpacking because most people are not familiar with the Tu Bishvat Seder. So right. you, you, you are an insider, you're speaking as an insider, but the, uh, the Tu Bishvat Seder is actually a practice that was instituted in the 16th century among the Kabbalists of Tzfat, of Safed, S-A-F-E-D. Um, and um, it's actually, it's structured somewhat like the Seder, like the Passover Seder, but the idea was to connect between particular fruits and uh, the symbolic meanings of those fruits. So originally it was not an environmental practice. It has to do with Kabbalistic symbolism and I'm not gonna unpack it for you here now, but the idea is that it's a symbolic activity. What happened in the 1990s, especially, that especially in, in, in reconstructionist communities uh, and in some Kabbalistically oriented community like in the Jewish renewal, they took this practice and in kind of infused it with environmental meaning. I don't think that it really caught the imagination. Maybe Rabbi Yankovich will have a different uh, take on it. I don't think that it really um, kind of inspired a lot of people to do it, uh, but those who do uh, find meaning in it. So as far as I'm concerned from an environmental, uh, from, from my perspective, uh, Jews can do a lot of things, and if, if it works, if that particular ritual is meaningful to a particular community, that, that's terrific. Uh, would, would that make these people uh, become environmental, uh, kind of uh, climate advocates? Maybe, maybe not. I, I cannot tell you. you. You see the issue. So I don't know what is the impact of, of that particular practice on changing what happens in the world, especially in terms of climate change, but it definitely has to do with ecological orientation or mindfulness or, or kind of openness toward the, the environmental issues. So as far as I'm concerned, it's all good. <laughs> and it's by the way, that originally this particular practice was amongst Sephardi communities, not so much Ashkenazi communities. Yeah, you should know that. 
Awesome. Uh, I think we have time for maybe one or two more questions. I'm happy to jump in. Hello. Uh, hi. Hava, I, uh, I was a student, uh, a student of yours, not in your class, but I, I uh, learned so much from you back in Indiana years oh ago. God. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, a long time um, ago. <laughs> yeah, I think our, our, our paths have, uh, have joined in a certain sense. I'm, I'm tremendously inspired by your work in Jewish environmentalism, and I'm an environmental activist myself involved with some of the organizations that you uh, you mentioned. I want to mention one additional one that came out about uh, a year ago called the Jewish Earth Alliance, which I think is a very powerful organization that um, organizes um, letter campaigns. Really, it, it's a matter of uh, uh, convening uh, groups of Jews in different locations to learn about uh, specific legislation and issues, and then write letters and form relationships with the local, uh, local uh, Congress people and senators. Uh, and then the letters are delivered, and then a conversation takes place. Uh, so it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful form of advocacy. Um, so I just want to I want to ask you because uh, it's a wonderful you gave a wonderful overview of. Uh, Judaism and, and uh, environmentalism and climate change. But, you know, those of us who, uh, who are active in this, in this area, uh, you know, as you alluded to, uh, kind of hit our heads against, against glass, a glass ceiling, <laughs> a glass wall somewhere, uh, because the major organizations aren't really addressing it. Um, and I'm wondering uh, if you have any thoughts about why that is, and if you've seen any efforts that can, that can, you know, um, change the need, move the needle a little bit uh, in this in this area. Yeah. Well, thank you. That's that's a very um, very constructive kind of question. Um, I'll put it this way: when I started, when I got into this uh, conversation, this was in 1997, uh, because I was invited to to the conference that we had in Harvard. Uh, I, I didn't. I was not involved in Jewish environmentalism either. But I was invited, and then I was asked to to, to edit the volume, which I did. Um, at the time, and still for a long time afterwards, there were other issues on the agenda of the Jewish community. Anti-Semitism comes first. Israel, American relationship comes second. Gender, sexuality issues third. Uh, what else do we need? Um, there are various, uh, even biotechnology issues that have to do with reproduction, they come forth. So, so environmentalism goes down, further, further down in the list. However, it seems to me that over the years, there has been a move, I, I, would, I would be more positive than, than you are, but, but you, are in the, <laughs> you are in the trenches more than I am. I think that uh, we have more attention now, I see so many grassroots like the one you just described. Uh, there are so many initiatives, local, regional, sometimes also national. So there is some agitation, but who are the people who are agitating in that direction? A lot of time it comes from Jews who were unaffiliated. A lot of time it comes from Jews who were uninvolved earlier with Jewish communal life. 
And environmentalism becomes a new way of being Jewish, a cooler, you know, a more cool way, a more exciting way, more whatever, uh, involved way. So I don't know what you can do except by saying everything has to be done locally. It has to be done from the local federation, from the local uh, congregations, and from the, from the local, it can become regional and then national rather than the other way around. So, so I really believe that that's the way to go. I don't think that we need to lose hope. I think that we can be, because the problems are so severe and they're so profound. And if we're gonna start dealing with climate change refugees, which is gonna happen very, very soon, it's already happening. We will not be able to close our eyes or, 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 or you know, ignore what's happening around us. So I expect the Jewish community to become more involved. Obviously, Rabbi Yankovic knows a lot about it. He can say more because he, he heads his own organization, Shemaim Ba'alitz, and that's an example of what can be done locally and how it can affect things nationally. So, so let's, let's keep a hopeful perspective uh, and keep, keep doing the world. But I agree with you that um, it can be frustrating. I, I agree with that can be frustrating because you know the stuff you've been there but other people don't know the stuff and you always have to go what I call you have to go to the ABC you always have to start from the beginning in order to move forward great awesome well uh, thank you everyone for um, joining us today and uh, as Rabbi Yankowitz mentioned at the beginning of the talk. We uh, are going to have another event on Monday with Rabbi Chaim Seidlerfeller. That's Monday the 23rd at 1 p.m. And uh, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. And um, thank you, Professor Havas Tor Samuelson and everyone at ASU for helping us partner and bring this conversation uh, to our community. And I hope everyone has a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So thank great. you, Dr. Thank Samuelson. You. Uh, Rabbi, you. would you like to say something to the community from your perspective, since you are an environmental activist? <laughs> oh man, uh, you know, I, I, I just think um, I, I, there, the, I, I don't want to take up uh, much, much space, but uh, just because I wanted to just listen to you, but the one thing I, I want to say is that um, I am continue, continuously perplexed and curious about the sustainable human behavioral choices as a student of psychology. And I have found there's a, just a major gap between ideology um, and how we, how we often live. And I find this particularly on the environmental issue. And so I think uh, for me, this is much more of a spiritual revolution than a political revolution that's needed in regards to how we think about this. So. Um, uh, I am I, I, honored to be a part of your conference that's coming up on this issue. I'll have much more to share there, but continue to be inspired by this. So thank you. Okay, thank you so great. Okay. So let's, let's keep the good world, uh, the, 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 the good work, and let's be involved in Tikkun uh, Olam and Tikkun Tevel. That's exactly what, what the message should be of this kind of uh, engagement. I love that you call the Tikkun Tevel because it's, you know, people often merely talk about Tikkun Olam and that really does mean human to human, uh, which is which is really important. But these various levels of Tikkun are, are, are so important to the sustainability of the whole. So, um, uh, yeah, but I think that rabbis also have a, a, a very important role to play. And if you are hinting at the need to change Jewish lifestyle and Jewish consumption patterns, 
within the Jewish community, uh, organized Jewish community, as well as privately for each one of us in our domestic environment, uh, that is a message that rabbis can, can um, deliver in a way that an academic cannot deliver. Right, right. And, and theology. How do we continue to uphold human rights and human dignity while dismantling the dominant anthropocentric worldview that implies um, everything is for our disposal? Um, so uh, the, 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 the work is large. Yeah, the work is large, but I think that if we keep the expression of ethics of care and responsibility, that goes a long way because ethics of care is about relationality. It's not about hierarchy. It's not about domination. It's actually a very important feminist insight here, uh, but it has a lot of uh, philosophical uh, depth that, that I think is relevant. So I'm not sure what you mean by spiritual revolution. Where do you want to go with the spiritual revolution? Uh, maybe the Jews are not where you want them to be spiritually, but I think that uh, Jewish education, I would say, on all levels, and starting early, I think that's what we are missing. Instead of starting a, a environmental education, I don't know, third grade, if not earlier, uh, we don't do it. And I think we need to do it in the synagogues, we need to do it in our youth, um, youth groups and in our uh, youth camps. Uh, Across, across the board and teach people to be environmentally minded, concerned, engaged. And people who are, you know, all the virtues of the Jewish tradition, humility, benevolence, uh, all of those things that we teach actually have ecological impact and ecological significance. So we just I love that. it out. I love that Re connecting the midot, the midot, and the character development uh, uh, to this form of uh, of social action and of lifestyle. That's and the spirituality I'm referring to. If I were to talk about it in an interfaith context outside Jewish language, is to live with an elevated spiritual consciousness of interconnectivity, the sense of how we how everything affects everything. Uh, yes. That's that that our work, our environmental work, is not altruistic. Altruistic, right? Uh, it's not a sacrifice. It's also right. self interested. Correct. No, I, I agree. That's rule number one of uh, the law of ecology. And that was stated by a Jew, a secular Jew, right? So uh, I don't know where you stand on the, on the role of secular Jews in this conversation. But for me, oh, yeah. uh, mm -hmm. I think that secular Jews and starting with Bookchin and Kamener and Ehrlich, to me, it's a secularization of Jewish values. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah. what they were doing in the, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, they were not doing it from within the Jewish tradition because they didn't have access to it. But the insights, many of the insights are secularization of biblical values, in my view. So maybe it's not fair to see a, a, a Marxist as actually a, a person who is rooted in the Bible, but I actually believe that. Well, you know, I mean, we can go back to Spinoza a little bit um, and, and understand, you know, this sort this form of atheism and this form of divinity within uh, within his model. And and actually kind of uh, what does it mean to be secular? And what does it mean to be religious today? You know, sure. the, the uh, Dego Machen Ephraim Hasidic teacher says, I'm not so into, into gematria at all, at all, numerology. But he says the numerology of Elohim is the same as is Teva. Oh, yeah, and he works out, he works this out, that God is nature. So however we understand, and Spinoza clearly is a secular, a secular, I mean, you might say. I mean, he's well, it's complicated. 
it's complicated, complicated. And, and and this particular gematria only work if you add hey but you're right that already in the 15th century that was actually already in the 15th century we have text especially Abraham Bibago already identified Elohim and Hateva so there's a very long tradition uh, in that regard. who was the person did you say Abraham Bibago Oh, very nice. So it's, okay. it's also, you can find similar things in Arama, but in the 15th century, you already have that kind of conversation about how Hateva and Elohim are basically two sides of the same coin. And Spinoza develops it uh, about... 200 years later, but it comes out of that medieval yeah. philosophical tradition. You know, the last time we spoke was about Buber, and I, and obviously Buber's eye in that was mostly about human encounters. You know, Paul Mendes Flohr talks about uh, encounters with animals, horses Correct. and cats and for trees. Buber, and but trees. does Buber, and you said trees? Yes, yes. Well, well, that was going to be my question, actually, the dialogical nature, the relationship between us and the earth, so... Absolutely, um, yes. I think that the Buberian, by the way, uh, Buber's uh, dialogical philosophy has influenced leading uh, Christian environmentalists, or envi you can call them Christian eco-theologians. Uh, so Larry Rasmussen is one, Sally McFaig is another, but Buber had enormous impact on non-Jews, precisely on that issue, on, on how this mm -hmm. dialogical either relationship has to be developed uh, toward the natural world and not just within the social world. So mm -hmm. definitely the Jewish tradition has so much wisdom and so many insights and so many layers of relevance to the ecological uh, challenge that we are facing. Uh, so in that regard, there's a lot to teach, but I hope that you will teach it in, in, in many other contexts. I, I think really that's the job of the rabbis and I don't know to what extent it's done, but I would like to see it's done everywhere and by everyone. Amazing, amazing. So thank you so much thank for joining so much. this uh, lovely conversation. So Terrific. Okay. Beautiful.